Amen. Christy, what a great voice and what great songs. Thank you so much. I was sitting there, of course, I know what the sermon's about, you don't. And I'm thinking, man, that just fits. Both of those songs fit so well, so hopefully I won't mess it up. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the title of the message is God's Way or Man's Way. We're going to talk about godly wisdom or human wisdom. And the scary thing for me as a pastor and just as a believer is that I see a lot of human wisdom trying to infiltrate the church. So I may step on some toes this morning. Uh, if, you know, we always tell the pastor on the way out, boy, you, you, know, you really stepped on my toe. Well, I wasn't aiming at your toe. I was aiming at your heart, okay? But I want you to, to follow along in this passage in just a moment. Let, let me give you a little test to start with. Here's some worldly wisdom. Some of these are sayings that we have grown up with that we all look at and think, well, yeah, I can see some validity to that. These are, some of these are proverbial sayings. Others are just things your mama used to say. Birds of a feather flock together. Losers never win. Winners never lose. Don't judge a book by its cover. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Opposites attract. It's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Now, we could, we could stay here all day talking about things we've heard, proverbial sayings, but the reason I've used those four, or actually those eight, is because the first four are totally contradicted by the second four. Did you get that? Did you catch it? Birds of a feather flock together. That sounds pretty good until you hear, you know what, opposites attract. Losers never win. Winners never lose. Contradicted by, you know, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Don't judge a book by its cover. But then we say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Bird in the hands worth two in the bush. Then we also say, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. That's some of the wisdom of the world. And, folks, we get it today, whether it's on television, whether it's on uh, bumper stickers, or whether it's billboard advertisement. It's amazing some of the things that kind of passes for, you know, that sounds okay. Well, how does it square with the Word of God? And what does God say about it? I want you to follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18. And I'm going to stop at verse 25 initially. We'll pick up with 26 a little later in the message. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian believers. We, we started this passage or this series last Sunday, so just let me catch you up to date. Paul's very gracious at the beginning of the letter. He, he talks to them about grace and peace. He tells them how thankful he is for them, very gracious, but then he starts saying, but you know what, i got some problems. And I want to say, if it's a problem a church could have, whether it be morally or spiritually or theologically, it seemed like the church at Corinth had, that, had those problems. In fact, we believe that Paul wrote them four letters, and the reason we believe that is because in 1 Corinthians, he makes reference to another letter. So there was apparently a letter before the one we actually have recorded is 1 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, we hear about another follow-up. So he wrote them a lot. Why? Because he loved the church at Corinth. He was there for 18 months establishing the church. And then he turned it over to Pastor Apollos, and he was following up. And yet word was getting to him that there were divisions in the church. Word was getting, word was getting to Paul in other areas that there was just some outright wrong thinking and even sin that was creeping its way into the church. 
So Paul continues in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul launches into verse 18 because of what he has just said in verse 17. Basically, he's trying to tell this church, listen, there needs to quit being divisions. The one thing that ought to unite the church is the cross of Christ. We ought to be all able to be able to rally around the cross of Christ and say that is the most important thing. Anything else we're bickering about ought to pale in comparison. In fact, Paul said, you know, some of you are, are picking up sides. You're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of, of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. In fact, he kind of lost count. If you go back and read what he said, he said, I did baptize these people, but I didn't baptize anybody else. Oh, yeah, I, I baptized this guy, but nobody else. Was baptism a bad thing? No. Jesus told us to go out and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Paul said, because I didn't want followers of Paul. By the way, Jesus didn't baptize people. Paul said, I didn't want you to follow me because I baptized you. I wanted to point you to Christ. And he said, because I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the message of the cross. Well, when that word leaves Paul's mouth, he realizes that when some people hear about the cross... They look at it and say, that's just foolish. In fact, I want to start just really with a couple of points about the world and then transition into God. So doing, I'm going to cover the passage a little differently this morning than I normally do. And so the first, I'm going to start with the world, the world's ways. First of all, the world rejects God's ways. What do they do with the cross? They call it foolish. Now, I want you to think we have a cross before you. I want you to think this entire message what do you think about when you see the cross? Because what Paul's saying is to the world, they see that as a sign of weakness. They see it as foolish. He's going to specifically address the Jews and the Greeks in just a minute. But basically, when the message of the cross was proclaimed, and we're talking about over in Corinth, which was a long ways from Jerusalem, over in Greece, in that culture. In fact, in the Greek culture, humility was a sign of weakness. Paul says the world looks at it and calls it foolish. Literally, it's the word we get the word moron from. It's moronic. It's silly. It's absurd. The world doesn't want to follow the directions that God has given them. Don't we do the same things at times? One of my codes of the road back when I used to travel was real men don't ask directions. That's why, men, occasionally we get the swing set to put together. And it says on the box, you know, any eight-year-old child could put this together in 45 minutes. I came in to put our swing set together, and the preacher across the street was going to help me. So we're in big trouble. Two preachers trying to put a swing set together. After three hours, we had it assembled. 
We also had a lot of parts left over. Why? Because we didn't want to read the directions. That's what Paul is saying. The world looks at the directions. The world looks at what, what I'm teaching about the cross. And later on he's going to say it's the power of cross, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. But he says when they look at the cross and they hear about a Savior who died on the cross, they call it moronic. Literally, they call it foolishness. And the ones who call it foolish are the ones who are perishing. And those are the very ones Jesus came to die for, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish. It means to be destroyed utterly. Jesus says the ones that are on literally the highway to hell are looking back at the answer to their problem, the cross, and saying, can't accept that. It's foolish. So the world has rejected God's way. The first thing to do is they call it foolish. The next thing they do, according to this passage, is they stumble over it. In fact, when Peter writes about Jesus, he said he's the chief cornerstone sent from God to save man, God's representative in the flesh, God the Father's representative in the flesh, Jesus, fully God, fully man, became the chief cornerstone of the church, and yet to many he became a stumbling block. The word stumbling block literally means a trap stick. In fact, the picture you get, I've never done this before, but you know, if you try to catch an animal in the woods and you bend a sapling over and put a rope that has a little, you know, hook at the end of it or a little noose at the end of it and you put something there that when the animal trips over it, the, the rope closes around his leg and you caught him. That's called a trap stick. Literally, that's what the word here is, stumbling block. It's a trap stick. The sad thing is these people are walking in the dark and God has sent the light and they rejected it. They chose to continue walking in the dark. Now, it's Mother's Day, so I'll pick on the men again. Why do we do that? I mean, just in practical sense, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you decide you're going to go to the refrigerator, either to get yourself some water or something to eat or something, why don't we, man, why don't we turn the light on? Why is it human nature that we think, I know the way to the kitchen, I'm not going to turn the light on because you don't want to wake anybody else up. You also don't really want to wake yourself up. You know, like, I don't really don't want the light in my eyes. How many times have you hit your little toe on the rocking chair going through the den? Or stepped on Mr. Potato Head or some other toy your child left out. Well, as silly as we look standing there on one leg hopping and, you know, with tears in our eyes from pain from our little toe getting creased back, that's what Paul is saying these people are doing. They are stumbling over the real truth of the message of the gospel. So the world has looked at God's way and have totally rejected it. So after rejecting it, then they do the only thing that seems right. They come up with their own way. The world rejects God's way, so the world tries their own way. Isn't that amazing? I don't know what that looked like if that ever happened in the boardroom, where, you know, the kind of, a, kind of the boardroom, you're sitting around the table, well, we can't accept God's way, so we're going to come up with our own way. One of the ways we, I see that done in our generation is, is just even the whole idea of of, of creation and intelligent design. It's amazing to me to see some of the men and women who teach science who come out and say, well, I know the most plausible explanation is intelligent design, but I can't accept that because accepting that would mean I believe there's a creator. I don't know if you keep up with this very much. Richard Dawkins, who's probably the foremost expert apologist on the anti-God movement, calls himself an atheist about a month ago. 
he came out and finally said, I could be wrong. He still calls himself an atheist, but he's at least opening up a gap. I think he said, I'm still like six out of seven that there is no God. I'm like five seconds after your last breath, you're going to believe with all your heart there was a God, and you waited too late to meet him. Richard Dawkins. Not, not Richard Dawson. He was a guy on Family Feud, but Richard Dawkins. Have you all heard of this guy? That's what Richard Dawkins believes. And what the world does is, this is what's incredible. All right, the only way we're going to pass this off, the only way we're going to get people to believe that God really didn't create things the way the Bible says he created them is, we've got to distance ourselves. So we're going to tell them that it was created millions and millions of years ago. Instead of, what does the Bible say? It was created in six days. Why is that hard to believe? If you believe in an all-powerful God, I believe that. That's what I believe. That's what the Bible teaches me. Don't tell me that it happened millions and millions of years ago. And the scary thing in the church is that too many church people kind of want to fit into the world. So we say, well, let's compromise. Let's compromise the truth of what the Bible says. And let's just tell everybody, well, we believe that maybe it happened millions and millions of years ago, but God did it. Let's give, let's give God credit for it. I want you to think for a minute how sovereign God is, how purposeful God is, did he really start spending this millions and millions of years ago and just a few thousand years ago put man on earth and sent Jesus 2,000 years ago? You really want to pass that off as plausible? No. In fact, if you've got a problem with the first three chapters of Genesis, you've got a problem with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus believed the first three chapters of Genesis. And he spoke about it. He spoke about the creation of the world. So be careful in the church that we don't allow the wisdom of the world to infiltrate the church. And because we're hearing both competing views, we just want to compromise. Can't we all get along? Well, on that one, no. So the world tries its own way. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying is, you can't get to know God by trying your way. Let me give you a few examples of how the world has done that. The word know, that he uses here, you can't know God any other way, is to really get a grasp of. Folks, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What did, what did the serpent say to Eve? He kind of lies to her to start with. He says, hadn't God said you can't eat of any tree in the garden? She says, no. That's not what he said. He said, we could eat of any tree of the garden. We just can't eat of that tree. And here's where Satan started his work. Well, you know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because God's holding out on you. He knows that that tree's good. He knows that it's good for, for wisdom and that if you were to eat of that tree, you're going to become like him. So what does Eve do? Takes a bite. And we've given the apple a bad name. We don't know if it was an apple or not. There's some people think if you've got Apple computers that you're of the Antichrist or something because there's a bite taken out of it. Nowhere in Scripture does it say it's an apple, all right? But it was the fruit of some kind. And it may be the fruit doesn't exist anymore. Maybe God obliterated it. Maybe in heaven we'll get to finally taste it. And God said, that's what you've been missing out on all these years. I don't know. But then what does Eve do? Hands it to her husband. By the way, he wasn't off playing golf or tending the farm. He was standing right beside her. And he ate of it too. And all of a sudden, their eyes were opened. And they were ashamed. And they tried to hide from God. And that's been the world's way ever since then. Another instance was a few chapters later in Genesis. What does the world do? The world all gets together and starts feeling kind of special about themselves. Let's build a tower. Let's build a tower to God. We know of that account now in Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel where God looks down and says, I'm going to confuse your language. You think you're special? 
I want to make it so you can't even understand each other. And it scattered the nations. The world can't get to know God through worldly wisdom. And specifically, Paul says, here's what's happening in our day. The Jews are asking for signs. The Jews want some kind of a testing miracle. The Jews ask for signs. The Greek ask for wisdom. What does that look like? If you've got your Bibles and want to flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 12, let me just give you an example. Jesus Christ is on earth. He's performing miracles. He's teaching. He's literally fulfilling the pages of the Old Testament. And we come to verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, literally an attesting miracle. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. They wanted a sign. Folks, we saw this right out of Satan's mouth when Jesus, after his baptism, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What does Satan say? If you really are the Son of God, why don't you prove it? I want to see a sign. Do a trick. Turn the stones into bread. Or cast yourself off the temple. Or bow down and worship me. And it carries on until three years later at the cross, the same thing is heard. What do the people come by and say? If you really are the Son of God, why don't you come down off the cross? In fact, one of the thieves being crucified with Jesus said, Yeah, why don't you prove that you're Jesus by coming down off the cross? And by the way, take me with you. The Jews sought some kind of sign because for them a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. They had hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about the suffering servant. They talked about what was going to happen to Jesus. But for them to look at the cross totally contradicted what they thought. Here's what the Jews thought. The Jews were waiting for the day when a conquering hero was going to ride into Jerusalem. Why did they think that? Because that's the only way they'd ever seen it done before. They'd been taken over by the Romans, and it was by the might of chariot and horses and swords and, and weaponry. So they're thinking, that's the way God's going to save us. Read your Bible. That's not the way God said he was going to save us. Jesus came and died on the cross. And for many people who had placed their hope in him, including Judas, by the way, who thought he's going to be that kind of conquering hero, when he heard about the cross, he was like, can't, can't be for me. And so the Jews had tripped over the message of Jesus. They were asking for signs. The Greeks searched for wisdom. Now keep in mind, Corinth was in Greece, so it was covered by this Greek culture. What Greeks loved to do, the men especially, was after a hard day's work or maybe on their day off, they'd go over to the bathhouse. And they'd kind of get in their exercise gear, they'd work up a sweat, then they'd take a soak in the warm water that was heated by warm water that the, the slaves were putting under the porcelain tub. And then they'd get out, towel off, put their clothes on, they'd love to go sit in another room and just listen to new philosophies. They love to just hear new stuff and then argue about it. And it was their favorite pastime. And so Paul says the Greeks love wisdom. The problem is they've heard the wisdom and have totally missed it. So the world has rejected God's way. They can't try to come up with their own way. Let's look at God's answer then. Third point is that God has rejected the world's way. He destroys the wisdom of the wise. To destroy is the word perish. 
same word that we see in John 3.16. Same word that we've seen that the fact that the world that is walking away from God, calling the cross foolishness, they're the ones that are perishing. God destroys what they put their faith in. He has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way is death. They're heading down the path that they think is leading them to life. And they've rejected God. And what they don't realize until it's too late is their rejecting of God is leading them towards the wrong way. You ever gone the wrong way? My family and I went hiking on the some trails right off the Blue Ridge Parkway. We pulled our car up, parked it in a parking lot, and this is when the kids were a lot younger. And we walked up this mountain, and it took forever. I think the path was about three miles, but you were doing this the whole way. So we get to the top, and I'm thinking, it's getting kind of late. Is there not a better way down? And fortunately, I saw a sign that pointed us right back to the parking lot, and it said it was a mile. And I'm thinking, we took three miles, and there was another way to get here? I said, y'all, let's go this way. So we go back down the, mile, the mountain. Sure enough, get back to the parking lot. Only problem is somebody had stolen our car. Well, at least I thought they had stolen our car. I started realizing this isn't the same parking lot we parked in. <laughs> you can't just walk down the mountain to any parking lot. So I realized our car is back that way. So I leave the, Eva and the kids there. And I go kind of jogging back that way. If you've ever been on Blue Ridge Parkway, I got to the viaduct that's the big bridge that takes you around, and I thought, we never came this far. Our car's not this way. It's back the other way. So I go jogging. By this time, my kids are crying because they weren't sure they were ever going to see Daddy again. Now here he comes without the car. <laughs> so I said, I'll be, all, I'll be all right. Finally, I get to the right car. But I get into it, and it's moments like that where God says, you know, Robert, if you just follow directions. You thought you were going to get there a different way. You can't. You better go back the way you know. And yet, folks, that's what the world has done. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He also says, I will set aside the cleverness of the clever. The word set aside means to make void, to bring to nothing. The world who thinks they're so clever. We figured it out. Folks, we live in an information age where everything that's ever been thought or said is at your fingertips. Most of it, you can watch a video. And yet all that cleverness and wisdom, for some, it is entombing them in knowledge that has no wisdom. It's just information. Paul said, I'll, God said, I will set that aside. In fact, the world calls the cross foolish. God says, I'm going to call their wisdom foolish. Their wisdom will become foolish. He says, where is the wise men? Literally, where's the philosopher? Where is the scribe? The word also for lawyer, man of letters. Where's the debater or disputer? Where are they? Well, they've all passed on. And the last thing, God blesses his way. Let me end just in the last few minutes with this, with this thought. God blesses his way. What does he say in verse 18? The word of the cross is foolishness. And yet that's the very thing that God says, no, it's not foolish. It is the power of God. When you look at the cross, one thing to think about is the word dunamis, dynamite, power. An explosion took place on this cross because it's where Jesus Christ died for your sins. And to come to faith in Jesus Christ means you come to the cross and acknowledge that you're a sinner. 
And because of that, you're separated from God. And because of what he did on the cross, you can know God. You can be forgiven. Not because you paid for your sins. Because you can't. But God did. It's the very dynamite, the very force, the very power of God. The Jews wanted a miracle. They got a miracle. They just couldn't accept it. Christ is the power of God. Verse 21, Paul says, For since the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. It wasn't just the, the heralding of it, but it was the whole point of the gospel. God was pleased through the message preached to save those who believe. In fact, some of those in verse 24 that are called are, were Jews and Greeks. Some of them left their belief behind and followed Christ. Third thought is God is wise and strong. Because the Jews and the Greeks couldn't comprehend, they just mocked the gospel. Folks, we live in that generation. There's some people when they find out that you believe in God, you believe in an intelligent designer, you believe that Jesus is the only way, folks look at you like you've just sprouted a third eye in the middle of your forehead. You're just the weirdest thing. You Get with it, man. That's not politically correct. Well, hello. I don't want to be politically correct. I want to be right with God. So God has set aside their wisdom. And we find out that God is the one who is wise and strong. Let me, let me read the rest of this passage. Verses 26 and following. Make a few points. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Keep in mind, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to a group of believers who've been told the right thing. The only problem is the outside world is now infiltrating with lies. So Paul brings them through this passage from 18 to 25 to teach them about the cross. Then he comes in verse 26 and really turns it around for them and says, Hey, just think about, consider your calling. In other words, take a look at your invitation to follow Christ and understand that it was God who chose you. It was God who chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world. And then he comes to this one line, the things that are not. And to you and I, that really doesn't mean a whole lot, but in the Greek culture, the things that are not translated the most contemptible phrase possible in the Greek language. Because Greeks were all about being. Greeks were all about, it was everything to be, I am. And Paul says, he's taken stuff that's not and made you look foolish. So Paul writes to the very heart, even using in some ways a major insult. So he's taking the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Greeks are looking for wisdom. The world's looking for righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's all four of those words in verse 30 and says, it came because of you who are in Christ. Consider your calling. Let me just bring us back now 2,000 years later into 2012 America. 
church, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, consider your calling. Are you in Christ? Because the day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become in Christ. The word in, I I taught the crowd last week. It's a Greek word. I'm going to teach you a Greek word this week. Here's how you pronounce the word in in Greek. In. Now, it would be spelled E-N, but it literally means this, a fixed position or a position of rest. If you are in Christ, you can rest there. And the wisdom the world's looking for, you got it. How? Because of Christ. God's wisdom to replace your wisdom. The righteousness that you're looking for, the word righteous means to be placed in right standing. It means to be as something should be. If you say that something is righteous, it means that it's what it ought to be. Well, until we come to Christ, we're not what we ought to be. But through Christ, we become righteous. We Sanctification, he's already used that word in the first few verses of chapter 1. He calls them saints. He says they're the ones that are sanctified. It's a word where we get the word holy. You've been made holy. You've been purified. You've been set apart for a purpose. You've been redeemed. Through Christ, there's been redemption, which means a ransom paid in full. It literally means to buy back. It means that God created you. The world has taken you away from Him, and through Christ, He has brought you back. And so if you want to boast, boast about that. Verse 31, as it is written, Let him who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Him who vaunts himself. If you want to brag on something, brag on God. Brag on the fact that that cross is the power of God. And claim it proudly. The world wants to put all their boasting in themselves. That's what Paul writes in another letter to Ephesians. He says, listen, you've been saved by grace. Not a result of your works. Because if it was of you, you could boast. You could walk around with your chest poked out and said, God deserves me. You know, I've, I've, I've worked for this. But Paul says, no, it's all by grace. Because if there's anything you could do, you'd boast about it. So Paul in verse 31 says, if you want to boast about something, boast about the fact that there's power in the cross. We come to the cross with nothing in our hands, but we cling to God who offers grace. Let's pray together. Father. Help us in a world of information. Help us in a world that has rejected Christ so they tried to explain Him away. They've rejected God. They've looked at God and thought He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. We've got to come up with an alternative because we can't go there. And God, I know there's some people sitting in this room that they've been made fun of because they believe the simple message. God, would you strengthen us in our resolve and our conviction that Jesus Christ is enough. We don't have to add something to it. He's enough. Because the cross really is enough. God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross in my place so that I could be forgiven. God, I pray that you'd use those of us in this room that believe that to be shining examples of that in the world. Thank you for your truth, for your grace, and ultimately, Lord, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name.